Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're going to start reading in verse 11. In that day I'll raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, close of the breaches thereof, and I will raise up ruins, and I will build it in the days of old, as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, he that, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. And they shall make gardens and eat the fruit thereof, uh, a fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being here. Would you pray for those out at camp? That Father God, you'd have your hand upon them. May they have a good day today. Would you pray that, Lord, you bless us here today, that uh, we would receive from you that which you have for us. Would you speak to us through your word. Give me wisdom, I pray, from on high now, as I uh, speak your truth today, that I might speak it according to your will, that you might receive the praise and the glory. Minister to our hearts needs, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this final vision of uh, Amos, we saw last week that he sees the Lord right at the place of worship, standing by the altar, not the altar in Jerusalem, but more than likely the altar that's in the king's palace in the northern kingdom, since Amos speaks to the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom. It seems more likely that he's standing by the altar there in the north in the king's palace, and he's there supervising the judgment that God's about to pour out upon the nation of Israel. And in this chapter of the book, the prophet Amos shares four affirmations from the heart of the Lord, three which deal with judgment, which was last week, and the fourth which deals with mercy. We saw last week, I will strike, in verse 1, I will search, in verses 2 through 4, and I will destroy, in verses 5 through 10. And that leaves us with just one affirmation to come, an affirmation of mercy. And that's what I want us to consider today, this affirmation of mercy. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, And in that day I, uh, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, close of the breaches thereof, and I'll raise up the ruin, his ruins, and I'll build it in the days of old. So I will raise up, or I will restore, God promises here, I will restore the nation of Israel. I'll strike, I'll search, I'll destroy. Now I will restore this last vision has a strong message of judgment. But the final affirmation is an affirmation of mercy. Verse 11 introduces to you and I the conclusion of Amos's prophecy, which takes the form of this prophecy of promise, this prophecy of, pro prophecy of promise of restoration for the nation. The Lord is a compassionate God, and he doesn't desire the destruction of his people as much as God has spent these chapters, eight and a half chapters of Amos, speaking about the judgment that God's going to pour out upon the northern kingdom, God does not want to judge his people. The bottom line is God would much rather bless them than destroy them. One commentator said, His holiness will not countenance sin, but will embrace and eradicate it so that the may be saved. That's what the Lord did for us, the salvation. God did not overlook sin, he simply judged sin at Calvary so that you and I could be saved. 
He eradicated the penalty of sin at Calvary so you and I could be saved. Well, he wants to do the same for Israel. There's a day coming when God will restore his people to their land. He'll forgive them. And the Lord is the, in this last affirmation, promises that the redeemed Israel will again inherit the land. The promise of Rachel forms the subject of the last five verses of the book of Amos. I want you to notice for me a, a series of promises here. Note first the promise of the restoration of the house of David in verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen. In this verse, and indeed the next verse, verse 11 and 12, the Lord speaks about the fact that he will restore the house of David. And notice what he says in verse 11, I'll raise up the tabernacle of David. Long before Amos came on the scene, the northern kingdom of Israel had rejected the house of David. They rejected the lineage of David. They rejected the kingship of the family, the royal house of David. In fact, they'd moved north, away from Jerusalem. They'd moved north from Samaria. And there they'd established their throne with their king and their set of worship, totally separate from that which was in Judah, the southern kingdom. And here God promises to restore David's royal line. Now, ultimately, that's fulfilled in Messiah. Ultimately, that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he comes back from heaven's glory and stands upon the Mount of Olives and ushers in the millennial kingdom. And that's what Amos is looking forward to here. He's looking forward to that day when God will reestablish the kingdom of David in the land under Jesus Christ, who sits upon the throne of David. You know, Jesus Christ is a tabernacle of David. He's at the house of David. Now it's interesting that verse 11 is an abrupt change in this book and indeed in this chapter. For 10 verses of chapter 9, there is a message of rebuke and judgment. And then in verse 11 he says, in that day will I raise up the tower of David. There's an abrupt change. One commentator said this, the transition from verse 10 to verse 11 is the most abrupt and surprising in the entire book. The sword of judgment gives way to the trowel of reconstruction. I love that phrase. The sword of judgment gives way to the trowel of reconstruction. And that's exactly what God's promising here. To change from destroying the nation to rebuilding the nation. And so while this is an abrupt change in this book, the truth is that without this last section, 11 to 15, and this change of tone, the book of Amos would be incomplete. In fact, the book of Amos would be rather dark and rather uh, dim and rather miserable. Without these last five verses, this book is really is a very dark book of judgment for the northern kingdom. These verses finish off the prophecy in such a wonderful way. Another commentator said, It is now declared that the reason of divine judgment is not revenge, but the only way in which it is possible to usher and restore order on which the heart of God is set. You know, God's purpose in judgment is never revenge. God all judges for the purpose of restoration. He never, God is not seeking revenge on Israel. He's not seeking to punish them because God wants to seek revenge. God's punishing them for he wants their restoration. The whole purpose in this judgment is that one day they will turn back to him. In fact, God's hoping that during the judgment they will turn back to him. 
It's not about destruction. It's about restoration. And the Lord wants to restore his people just as much as he wants to save sinners. You know, sinners will be judged, but the Lord would rather save them, wouldn't he? You know, hell was created for the devil and his angels. It wasn't created for human beings. And God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The, the desire of God, the, the heart of God, is that he wants to see all men saved. He has no desire. He finds no joy in sending people to a Christly eternity. He would much rather people get saved. And so God allows for judgment to fall for the purpose of bringing people to their knees so that they might cry out to him for salvation. God's desire in judgment is always restoration. God doesn't want to destroy. God does not want to punish. He'd much rather save. Now, in contrast to God's destroying the Israelites' place of worship, God will raise up the house of David. I'll raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, close the breaches thereof, he says. And in so doing, the Lord assures a bright future for the people of Israel, indeed for the people of Judah. Amos knew that Israel was ruined. In fact, he speaks of restoring the tabernacle of David instead of the house of David, which is a rather interesting word. You know, a tabernacle is a house, but it's a humble one. If, if you were a Jew and you said, I live in a tabernacle, you're saying, I live in a tent. Okay, that's what a tabernacle is, it's a tent. It's a nice way of saying it. So, you know, I'm not going tenting these holidays, I'm going tabernacling. It, it sounds a whole lot better than going tenting, you know. So, but there's a tent. It's not a permanent dwelling. It's not a and it's interesting, he says, I'll restore, I'll, I'll raise up the tabernacle of David, I'll raise up the tent of David. It's a humble dwelling. The picture, uh, uh, this picture is the house of David that was becoming dilapidated. In Amos' time, the Davidic dynasty had fallen so low that it could no longer be called a house. The image is that, it's like this, if you can get this image, it's like a, it's like a, a, a rickety old shack. That's what the house of David looks like right now. It's a rickety old shack. It, it's about to collapse. If you were to walk by the house of David, if you could see what God's describing here, what you see is a rickety old shack that's about ready to fall down. And, and it looks beyond restoration. It looks beyond repair. It's not even a renovator's dream. This is beyond even a renovated nightmare. That's the condition that this nation is in. The city of David, the, the, the tabernacle of David, the house of David is in ruin. Even in the southern kingdom, it's not long before Judah's about to go into captivity for the same reasons that Israel's about to be overtaken by Assyria. They're going to be overthrow the Babylonians because of their turning their back upon God and no longer loving the Lord and turn their back upon the house of David. In fact, the Babylonian captivity, or rather from the Babylonian captivity to this present hour, there has been no Davidic king ruling over the Jews. Though the Jewish nation has been restored in 1948 to the land, they have no king, they have no priests, they have no temple, they have no sacrifice to this day. There still is nobody sitting upon the throne of David in Israel to this day. One day, however, 
the Lord will restore, repair, rebuild the dynasty of David and establish the kingdom he promised. Notice what he says. He says, in that day, I will raise the tabernacle of David that has fallen. And then he implies, and I will close up the breaches thereof. And I will raise up the ruins. And I will build it as in the days of old. God's fourfold promise here to the house of David. When Jesus Christ comes again, the breach between Israel and Judah will be healed. And there will be one nation with one king reigning from Jerusalem. That's the king of kings. Jesus Christ himself upon the throne of David. God will bless the land. God will bless his people. And they shall live with peace and stability in the land. He says that you'll close up the breaches thereof. In other words, where the city has been overrun, the, the places where the enemy can get in, the, the place in the wall which are broken down where the enemy can get in and overthrow, God's going to repair those breaches and they're going to live in the land in safety, security with Christ upon the throne. The time of peace, prosperity for the glory of the Lord. You know, one day the Prince of Peace is going to come. And when the Prince of Peace comes, he will reign. And peace will reign upon the earth. What a day that will be, right? Imagine getting up in the morning, turning on the news, and there's no terrorist attack. There's no war going on anywhere. There's nobody bombing somebody. There's nobody, there's no shootings. There's no murders. There's no peace. What a day that will be. And any disruption will be put down with a rod of iron. And you and I will for a thousand years rule and reign with Christ as he sits upon the throne of David in the millennial kingdom. What a day. That's the promise here of Amos chapter 9. The second description is I will raise up the ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Look at the second part of verse 11. I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as it, as it is in the days of old. God promised to take what was ruined and repair it and rebuild it and build it as it was in the days of old. He was going to restore the kingdom. Well, this is a prophecy of the millennial kingdom. It also speaks of a spiritual restoration. Because you see, the millennial kingdom is not only just a physical restoration of the nation of Israel in the land with Christ upon the throne. There's also a spiritual restoration that takes place. He's going to raise up his ruins and I will build it up as in the days of old. God's going to make it the way it was supposed to be, the way it was, where the nation worshipped him. This was a spiritual kingdom as much as it was a physical kingdom. The whole point of God choosing a nation under Abraham, saying, I'll call out a nation for myself, and the seed of Abraham would become the Jewish nation, and then establish them in the land, was that they would be a witness of the testimony of the glory of God as they lived and they, they functioned in the land of promise that God had given them. And they would bring glory to his name. This was a nation whose hearts were in tune with him. And there's going to be a spiritual restoration of the millennial kingdom. Not only just the physical buildings, not only just going to be a beautiful temple and the temple of the millennial kingdom with the else, but there's going to be a change of heart. The nation of Israel is going to turn to their God. And so there's going to be far more than stones and buildings. 
He's going to rebuild and repair them physically, but also he's going to rebuild and repair them spiritually. It's the saved. Those who experience the mercy of God are going to enter in the millennial kingdom, the saved Jews. Those whose hearts have been turned unto him will go into the millennial kingdom and they'll call his name and they'll bring glory to him. We can praise the Lord. He will save sinners. We'll call upon him and restore them to fellowship with him. We have a wonderful and gracious God, don't we? If any nation doesn't deserve restoration, it's his. But God will restore them because he loves them. And if any people don't deserve salvation, it's you and I, isn't it? But God saved us because he loves us. What a great God we have. A wonderful and gracious God. The third description here in verse 12 is, I will save all the heathen who are called by my name. Look at verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. God announces that even the Gentiles, the heathen, who are called by name, my name will come under the tabernacle of David. This is an amazing prophecy. See, God says, I'm going to restore the house of David. I'm going to rebuild the house of David. I'm going to restore them spiritually, but I'm also going to allow the heathen, the Gentiles who are saved, to be a part of it. This is a remarkable statement to the nation of Israel. Even the heathen who call upon my name will experience my mercy, God says. Well, through Amos uses language reminiscent of the promises that God made to Abraham. You know, when Abraham was called, God said that, that I'll change your name from Abram to Abraham because you'll be the father of many nations, and by thy seed shall all nations be saved. So it's not just about the Jews, it's about all nations. When you read about the quest, when the nation of Israel were conquering the land, the point of that was that they might bring many, even the heathen, to God. But by the conquest, about this time, the conquest would be divine conquest and the saving of souls by grace, by which a remnant of Edom and all the nations would become the people of God. Now, Edom, of course, is the relatives of Jacob, okay? You have Jacob and Esau, the Edomites, others of Esau. They're, that's the splitting of the nation of Israel between two brothers. God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to work. So not only is Israel and Judah saved, but all those who call upon me in Edom, all those who are part of the nation of Israel, but split those Edomites, okay? Those Arabs who are the brothers through Ishmael of their family and through the family of Edom, the Edomites, through Esau. God's going to restore them. He's going to restore the, the nation into one. But not only that, he's going to restore the heathen. It's a great promise. God has always, through mercy and grace, desired to save all people, not just Jews. It's interesting. James, the half-brother of Jesus, quotes this verse in Acts chapter 15. Go with me to Acts chapter 15, if you would, please. Acts chapter 15. I thought this was interesting. I'd never seen this before, so maybe you all have, and I'm just a 
dummy who hasn't, but uh, <laughs> I hadn't seen this before. And I've read, I don't know how many times I've read Acts chapter 15, but I've never seen this before. Acts chapter 15, of course, is the Council of Jerusalem, the so-called Council of Jerusalem. If you remember the story, Paul and Barnabas are up north in Antioch and they're witnessing and people are getting saved. And then some Judaizers come up and say that in order for them to be saved, they have to become Jews. They need to be circumcised, they need to take on the Jewish religion, and they need to keep the law, etc. So Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by the church of Antioch to go down to Jerusalem and to talk to the church of Jerusalem about what they think is right here. What's the story? And so they come down and have a discussion uh, here in Jerusalem about what it's right, what does God expect of them? Of course, this is where the apostles are. And so it's only reasonable to go back to the place where the apostles are to have a discussion with them about this. And so they come back, and after the whole conversation, James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, the half-brother of Christ, stands up and makes a declaration to the people about what God requires of Gentiles. And if you look in chapter 15 and verse 13, we read this. And after they had held their peace, James, that's the half-brother of Christ, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people of his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as is written. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. He quotes Amos. I've never seen that before. He quotes Amos. It's correct prophecy that Amos is quoting here. And of course, Amos is talking ultimately about the millennial kingdom. But right here, James is using this passage to say, what's going on in Antioch, what's going on in the Gentile world is expected. God promised to save Jew and Gentile. He promised to save the Gentiles by faith because of his mercy and his grace. And James quotes the very passage here. He makes it clear that God wants to save both Jew and Gentile. And he used the passage to demonstrate that God promised to reach the Gentiles and to bring them to the kingdom under Messiah. And in the millennial kingdom, we're going to be there, the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile. The Jews are going to be there who are living at the time, who call upon the name of the Lord and save. They will enter in. Tribulation saints who are Gentiles will enter in. God's going to keep his word. And his promise. Now it's interesting, in Acts chapter 15 and verse 17, we read this, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. Yet in Amos chapter 9 and verse 12, it says this, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. So it's translated in Acts as the residue of the men might seek the Lord. And in Amos it says that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Now, there's no contradiction here, by the way. It's simply this. James explains, without explaining, because the Jews, of course, are there. They know this passage, I'm sure. He explains without explaining that Edom represents all other mankind. Okay? So you have Israel, you have Edom, and you have the Gentiles. It means everybody, okay? He's including the residue of Edom 
and where it says in, in uh, uh, the residue of men might seek the Lord. All men, okay? And the point here, what Je Amos is trying to make is he's trying to make by that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the heathen. He's trying to say there is nobody excluded from the house of David. There's nobody excluded from the mercy of God, nobody excluded from the grace of God. He knows the Jews well, you see. If he'd have just said the Jews and the heathen, there'd have been some group that would have left out. Because that's what they did. They didn't like the Samaritans because they were half-breeds. They were half-Jew and half-Gentile. They didn't like them, so they excluded them. They didn't like the Gentiles. They thought they were dogs, so they excluded them. You can guarantee if he just said the Jews and the Gentiles, that I said, ah, what about the Edomites? Because that was the Jews. They would, they, would love, they would have excluded somebody. So God says, I want you to know it's Edom and the heathen. And James says, I want you to know it's the remnant of all men. Who's that? The Gentiles. Okay, just in case you don't understand. And who's a Gentile? Anyone who's not a Jew. That's the point. Okay? There is not three classes of people. There's Jew and Gentile. There's three. Jew, general, church. I understand that. But speaking physically, there's Jew and Gentile. You're either a Jew or you're not. And if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Doesn't matter what race you are, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And Amos wants to make it clear that all men can be saved. What a wonderful promise, isn't it? I, I just found it was so wonderful that James quotes it. Of all the passages you could have quoted in Acts chapter 15, he quotes this passage, and it's about the fact that God will show mercy to all who will call upon his name, doesn't matter who you are. And in the millennial kingdom, there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be there. Because God is a gracious and merciful God, wanting to see the salvation of all men. And ultimately, we will be ushered into that kingdom together to his glory. And then we see a second promise. It's the restoration of the abundance to Israel. Not only a restoration of the tabernacle of David, but a restoration of the abundance to Israel. Now, don't worry, this is not as long, even though I've got three verses, not as long as the first part of this, okay? Verse 13, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes that soweth seed, and the mountain shall drop with sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I'll bring again the captivity of my people to, of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. And they shall make gardens and eat the fruit thereof. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Amos says, Behold, the days come, or the days are coming. In verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord. The inspiration Prophet ends the book on, on a high note. Looking forward to that great day of prosperity and abundance in Israel. God promises to restore them to prosperity. He explains this further when he says, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Hamas describes how miraculously, or how miraculous and amazing God's blessing and restoration is going to be. When God releases the blessing in the millennial kingdom, and restores the nation and indeed uh, allows the saved Gentiles in, in that day fruit comes quickly. In fact, it comes so quickly 
that the plower is overtaken by the reaper and the crops are, uh, the crops are growing so quickly that they're, they're planting and the plowman can't keep, can't keep up with the reaper. Okay, the reapers are taking crops, the plowman's planting and more crops are growing and they're reaping and they're planting. They just can't keep up with each other. That's how bountiful the prosperity is going to be in that day. He goes on to say, he says in verse uh, 13, he says, And the treasure of grapes that soweth uh, seed, and the mountains drop sweet wine, and the hills shall melt. He says, The grape treader will be overtaken by the sower in a cycle of never-ending growth. Okay, they're not going to be able to keep up with the treading out the grapes and making the wine because there's that many of them. It just keeps on growing. When God releases blessing and restoration, fruit comes at a pace. In fact, from unexpected places. Because normally grapevines don't grow well on mountains or high hills. But he says here, And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. In places where you don't expect crops to grow, crops will grow. Now we think Israel is a fertile place now, and it is. If you take a map of the world, and you have a look at the nation of Israel, it's green, and all around it is desert. But in this day, God says it's going to be so prosperous that even places where crops don't grow now, they will grow. In the days of Israel's restoration, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. God's blessing and restoration, the work is done with energy and joy. There will be a messianic banquet in that day with fruitfulness and peace that cannot be imagined. And you and I can read about that in Isaiah and in Matthew and, and in Revelation. In that day, there's going to be an absolute wonderful banquet taking place. Why not? There's plenty of fruit. There's plenty of things to eat. It's going to be so wonderful. You and I are going to go along to a feast with the Messiah. And we're going to be there. Sure, we'll be in our glorified bodies, but we're going to be there. At this day, when, this, when the place is flowing with milk and honey, when, when indeed there is going to be crops abundant, when there's a messianic feast for us to attend. Is it any wonder that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, the apostle said this, But as is written, I have not seen nor he heard, neither entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. I don't think you and I can begin to imagine what the millennial kingdom is going to be like. And you know, the millennial kingdom is just a taster of eternity. That's the amazing thing here. You see, it's not the grand finale. It is the grand finale for this world as it stands, because after this there will be the destruction of the world, to be burned by fire, and there will be a new heaven and new earth. But you know, the last shout on this planet earth is going to be the millennial kingdom with this great banquet and this great joy and this great excitement and all that's going on, but it's not, that's just a taster of eternity. For a thousand years, you and I are going to be teased about what eternity is going to be like. What a gracious God. What a day that will be. In verse 14, he goes and says, I'll bring again the captivity of the people out, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit thereof. This is the, begins with a promise of restoration from exile and continues with three blessings. These, these promises herald the complete reversal of people's fortunes. 
You know, they'd suffered because of their transgression. They'd built cities and others had destroyed them. They'd planted vineyards and others drank their wine. They'd planted gardens and others ate their fruit. Now the Lord would have compassion on the people and bless them. They would rebuild the desolate places. They would inhabit them and they would plant vineyards and drink their wine. They would make gardens and eat the fruit. This prophecy anticipates the ultimate restoration. Go with me to Revelation 22, please. Revelation 22. And verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse and there but the throne of God. And of the Lamb shall it be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And I won't take time to read the rest of the chapter. It's a glorious chapter. Our citizenship is in this city. You and I are going to, look, are going to live in this new Jerusalem. And we've got to look forward with joy. Let's rejoice that the Lord has compassion on us and forgives us our sins. He came to bind up the broken heart and set the captives free, came that you and I might be partakers of his joy. Praise the Lord, he's restored us through faith in Christ. Verse 15, And I'll plant them upon their land. They shall no more be pulled out of their land which I have given them. Not only will restore Israel and plant vineyards, but the Lord himself will plant the people upon their land and never uproot them again. The land that he gave them in those days, in the days of Moses and Joshua, he'll give them again. And this time it will not be taken away, or rather they will not be taken away from it, because that's what happened, they were removed from the land. God promises restoration, he looks forward to the day when Israel will never again be pulled out of their land. And note what the book ends with, the last phrase, saith the Lord thy God. Here's God's seal of authority. It's as though he's written this book. It's as though they've come through all the judgments. They've come to this glorious conclusion where God declares there's a day coming where I will restore and in that kingdom will be Jew and Gentile alike and Christ will sit upon the throne of David and they will be restored and they'll never lose the land again. And God says, and there's my seal upon it. Thus saith the Lord thy God. What a way to end a book, eh? This is what God said, and it cannot be changed. What an encouragement to the Jews. What an encouragement to us. That in spite of their unbelief, God will be faithful to keep his promises and restore them to the land. God can be trusted to keep his word. Praise God. We have a God who promised one day to establish his kingdom on earth. And all who know the Savior will be part of that glorious day. And what a day it will be. Praise God for his word. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the book of Amos. 
And Lord, we thank you for these last five verses, which are so glorious. And we could have spent so much more time looking into them and comparing them with Old Testament scriptures and New Testament scriptures about the millennial kingdom. But Father, we thank you that above all, you are such a great God that when you make a promise, you keep that promise. And one day, Father God, Israel will be restored to their land. Jesus Christ will sit upon the throne of David and he'll rule for a thousand years in a land that flows with milk and honey. And those of us who know the Savior will be partakers of the joy of that time, ruling and reigning with you, living in that new Jerusalem to your glory. And we thank you, Father God, for your word and your promises. Help us to be faithful till Jesus comes. This we ask in Jesus' name.